All right, if you'll stand with me, and as Pastor Bruce said, turn to 1 John chapter 4. We'll be reading verses 7 through 21. If you uh, don't have a Bible with you, you can find it on the, uh, the Pew Bible in front of you, page 709, as we continue in the summer series. And Pastor Bruce said the message in this chapter is about love. You'll see as, as I read and listen, the word love is mentioned a lot of times in this passage. So follow along as I read 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 21. Beloved, Let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. But he who does not, does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. If this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, We also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has seen perfected in us. But by this we know we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us of his Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you for your word. And we thank you for your love that's been manifested toward us in so many ways. Just pray that we would uh, love one another, love the community, love the people around us, that people will know that we are Christ followers by how we love and treat each other. And be with Pastor Bruce as he brings the message this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. The tragic events stemming from Charlottesville, Virginia on August the 12th continue to dominate our news. The whole scene was rather ugly, to say the least. I affirm what Kevin DeYoung wrote in his blog, Racism is wrong, white supremacy is sinful, and murder by car or by any other means is deplorable. God did not make any race to be superior or inferior to any other. And since all are made in God's image, every human life is of infinite and equal value. This is a powerful opportunity for the gospel to be shared. As Tim Keller writes, one main effect of the gospel is to shatter the racial barriers that separate people. We have a Savior who bridges the gap and makes peace between God and us, but not only between God and us, but between all of humanity. Ephesians 2, chapter, 
verses 14 and 16 says that the dividing wall of hostility is broken only through Jesus Christ. And so wherever you live, wherever you work, wherever you congregate and play, wherever that may be, what has happened in Charlottesville provides a wide open opportunity to share the love and peace and reconciliation that Jesus offers to all peoples. Most of all, it is an opportunity to manifest the love of God in which we just read about. We are life bridge. Lord, give us the grace to bridge the gap with your love. In fact, there are many responses that we can find in God's Word to the events stemming from Charlottesville, Virginia. Let me read one section of Scripture here as a response to what we have seen, the response of what we experience even now in our country. Paul writes in Colossians 3, 12-15, Put on then as God's chosen ones, that's us as Christ followers, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you were called in one body. I would submit to us this morning that now more than ever, we need God's perspective on love. And that's what John gives us here in chapter 4. In this passage, it's almost as if John is leading us up to the very pinnacle of God's love. And it's like John stands at the top of Mount Everest and gazes around for just a few minutes, and it's a clear day, and he can see for miles and miles, and what he's able to see is the very origin of love, God himself. Of all the biblical writers, John loves to talk about love, which is why John is often called the apostle of love. In fact, love, as Zach pointed out, dominates this passage here in chapter 4. Love is all over. In fact, the word love is repeated 29 times in these 15 verses. That's almost two times per verse. But did you also notice that God is also all over these verses? God is mentioned 21 times. So we have love being repeated, and we have God being repeated all throughout these verses. Why is that? Because you can't talk about the concept of love apart from God himself. Well, John certainly says a lot about love in this passage, Perhaps his best summary is found in verse 11. Look at it with me again. It's the hinge verse. It's the summary verse. It's the turning point in this chapter. He says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Now this is John's big idea and what he's trying to get across to us. If you want to summarize it in one statement, here it is. This is his main idea. It's his big idea that he wants us to grab hold of. Notice it. You are deeply loved by God. 
So love others deeply. That is the essence of what he is telling us here in this chapter. And really, that's the foundation for everything, isn't it? You are deeply loved by God. At some point in your life, almost every single one of us will be faced with the question, if God really loves you. Someone close to you will have a serious accident. Perhaps someone close to you will die of cancer, or you will lose your job, or your child will walk away from the faith, or your ministry will fail. And it's at those crisis points in life that almost inevitably we will ask the question, where was this God who loves me when that happened? When you're in the midst of difficult times, we are tempted to doubt what John writes here. We're tempted to doubt God's love for me. Satan loves to add fuel to the fire by whispering in our ear, if God really loved you, he wouldn't allow that to happen. But it's precisely in those moments that we need to be reminded of what John tells us here in chapter 4, that we are deeply loved by God, which is our very first point. We are deeply loved by God. Again, John writes in verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us. Now, that little word so, we just kind of glance right over that. But when you see that word so in verse 11, that means we are intensely loved by God. John's trying to communicate this aspect in so that it's not just a, a squirmy, feely kind of love. No, it's an intense love. You are loved deeply, in other words, by God. But don't think of God's love like our culture thinks of love. In our culture, love is too often understood in selfish and sexual terms. But John paints a completely different picture here. God is the very definition and illustration of unconditional and sacrificial love. In fact, John says God is love. And he repeats that statement two times in verse 8 and in verse 16. But what in the world does it mean when he says God is love? After all, we tend to understand God's love by how we experience love in this world. But what do you do when your experience of love is, well, it's selfish, it's abusive, it's for what the other person can get out of you, and it has nothing to do with God's kind of love. John says God is love. He doesn't say love is God. You see, we can say grass is green, but you cannot say green is grass. The two do not equal. Love doesn't define God. God defines love. We can't reverse this statement and say love is God, especially since all love is not God-like love. So what does it mean when John says God is love? Well, first of all, notice God is the source of love. That's one aspect of what it means when he says God is love. God is the very source of it. He writes in verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. Some of your translations may say, for love is from God. 
And so John says love is from God and love is God. And these two statements are not at odds. In fact, they support one another. Because when John says that love is from God, he doesn't mean love is from God the way letters are from a mailman. He means that love is from God the way heat is from fire or the way light is from the sun. Love belongs to God's nature. It's woven into who He is. It's part of what it means to be God. So although we might say, hey, my grandma is a very loving person, and that may even be true, what is said here is very different than saying my grandma is a very loving person. John is not saying that love is a quality that God just possesses. Rather, he is saying that love is the very essence of God's divine being. Now, in our culture, our, cult, our, culture, our, our culture worships what they call love. But what they call love has nothing to do with God. Listen, God's love is a holy love. Even in his judgment... There is love. As C.H. Dodd points out in his book, he says, and I quote, to say God is love implies that all his activity is loving activity, even his judgment. If God creates, he creates in love. If God rules, he rules in love. If God judges, he judges in love. All that God does is to the expression of his nature, which is to love. We live in a culture where the concept of a loving God is that he cannot and will not judge anyone for anything. God is love means, in our culture, that God is tolerant of all perspectives and all lifestyles. After all, he's love. Well, God is indeed love, but Hebrews 12.29 reminds us that God is also a Consuming fire. Most people want to think of God only as this warm, fuzzy candle, but not a consuming, holy fire. And this is why we will never fully grasp, we will never fully understand God's holy love for us until we see it in the cross of Jesus Christ. Which brings us to the second part of this statement that John says, God is love, and what that means. Notice number two, God's love is seen in the death of His Son. You see, the cross of Christ is the fullest expression of God's love. It actually shows us a kind of love, let's be honest, that we can barely wrap our minds around. We can barely comprehend this kind of love. Hurting people often wonder, does anyone love me? Perhaps you've been abused, betrayed, lied to, mistreated, or deeply wounded, and now you're asking the question, does anyone love me? Listen, the good news of the gospel answers, yes. You are deeply loved by a God who is love and wants to shower you with His love. How do we know that? God sent His Son for you. That's how we know. And to make sure you don't miss it, 
John repeats it twice in a matter of two verses here in verses 9 and 10. Look what he says. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us. That God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. What a radical demonstration of God's love. And notice this, it's not our love that got this whole thing started. It's not like we reached out to God in love and then God responded to us. No, God's love came first. We did not first love God, he first loved us. In other words, God he is the great initiator. And God did more than just tell us he loves us. He actually showed us his love for us. God's love, John says, was manifested toward us. What does that mean, manifested? It means to be made visible and to put on display for all the world to see, for you to see. And we, and we kind of can break this down on how that transpires here. First of all, God sent his only son. God did not send Abraham. He did not send Moses. He did not send some other prophet. He did not even send one of his angels. God sent Jesus, who is his only begotten son. In other words, there's no greater gift that God could give to you and I. It's why the Apostle Paul called Jesus God's indescribable gift. But there's more. God sent his only son for a very definite purpose. And that is to die. He was born to die. John says God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now that's a big, hairy theological word. But it is a great, beautiful, hairy theological word. Well, so what does it mean? What is propitiation? Well, let me give you just a simple description or definition. It simply means to turn away the wrath of God by means of an atoning sacrifice. And in this case, that atoning sacrifice is none other than who? Jesus Christ. Just think, it was God's love that sent His Son to die for our sins, to turn away God's wrath because of our sin, so that we might have eternal life in Jesus Christ. Finally, what makes God's love so great is that God sent his only son to die for who? Us. Us. God did the unthinkable here. He gave his son to die for undeserving rebels, sinners like us. Now why would God do such a thing? After all, none of us would. Because he loves you. God loves people who are unworthy of his love and really deserve his judgment because he wants to redeem you. He wants to redeem you out of your sins. He wants to reconcile you back to a relationship with him. That's why. And so the defining characteristic of God is love, and the defining quality of God's love is the grace that he showed to us. Verse 10 again says, 
In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Do you realize no one on the face of the earth in history past, history present, or even history forward, no one has ever sinned himself or herself beyond the love of God. There is nothing you can do to make God love you any more than he loves you right now. And there is nothing you can do to make God love you any less than he loves you right now. Well, blow me away with God's love. Because that's exactly what he does. John's first point is that we are deeply loved by God. God. And since that is true, John's second point follows. Deeply loved people ought to love others. Now, we can see John's logic here in verse 11. It's the summary verse, it's the turning point, the hinge verse, if you will. Look at it again. John writes, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love others or ought to love one another. Now, focus on that word ought because that is a, an important word. It means obligation. In other words, it's our responsibility, John says, to love others. We are obligated to love others in response to God's love for us. Sometimes we view loving others as optional. But John is telling us that loving others is not optional. We have an obligation here to love others. And loving others includes, yes, the body of believers here at LifeBridge, along with all other believers, but it's also, when he uses this term, others, it's referring to everyone, both believers in Christ and unbelievers in Christ. And so we have an obligation not only to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, but to love our neighbors, co-workers, fellow students, whoever we come in contact with. But here's the problem. And I'm, I think you'll agree with me on this. Some people, if not most people, are difficult to love. Right? Sure. You bet. Have you ever heard the poem, To dwell above with saints I love, that will be glory, but to dwell below with saints I know, well, now that's a different story. But John reminds us, beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. I can just picture the scene in the upper room where when Jesus gives the disciples this new commandment to love one another, Peter looks over at John and thinks, you mean I have to love that dreamer, that guy who has his head in the clouds? And John looks over at Peter and thinks, you mean I have to love that loudmouth? He's so annoying. He thinks he knows everything. Matthew looks at Thomas and thinks, you mean I have to love that skeptic? Thomas sees Matthew and thinks, I have to love that tax collector? And they're the scum of the earth. And we do the same thing. We look at our neighbor. We look at our co-worker. We look at our brothers and sisters. We may even look at our spouse and say, God, you mean i got to love that person? They're annoying. They're difficult to love. 
So how did the disciples do it? How do we do it then? How do we love one another? We'll go back to what John wrote in verses 7 and 8. Look at this. John gives us some insight here. He says, everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So when John says we ought, in other words, this is not optional. This, this, is, this is part of what we do as Christ followers. When John says we ought to love one another, he means ought the way fish ought to what? Swim. The way birds ought to fly in the air. Yeah, you're getting it. And living creatures ought to breathe. And peaches ought to taste sweet. And lemons ought to taste sour. And dogs ought to bark. You're catching on. You're following the logic here. And John now says, born again people ought to do what? Love. Why? Because it's who we are. This is more than just imitating Jesus. Listen, John's logic goes like this. As born-again people, as children of God, as sons and daughters of God, we are realizing who we are. We're acting who we are when we love as we ought. God's seed is in us. God's spirit is in us. God's nature is in us. And God's love, John says, is being perfected in us. John Piper puts it this way, yes, there is an external impulse of seeing in history the Son of God laying down his life for us and constraining us in this way. But listen to what he says next. But what's unique about the Christian life is that there is also the internal impulse that comes from being born again and having the very love that sent the Son into the world pulsing through our souls by the life of God within us. The new birth enables us to experience the manifestation of God's love in history as an internal reality of God's Spirit within us. So if you're wondering here, and by the way, we all should perhaps be wondering this, well, how does the fact that God loves me result in me loving others? The answer is, being born again creates that connection. Being born again is the act of the Holy Spirit connecting our dead, selfish hearts with God's living, loving heart so that His life becomes my life and His love becomes our love. Being born again connects us to God's love in such a way that it now defines who we are just as it defines who God is. In other words, if we are truly born again, then we will love others because we have God's divine nature by His Holy Spirit. It's who we are as God's children. John continues then in the next few verses after this, and he continues to kind of unpackage and expand on this power of God's love in us and through us. And he makes two points with this. Notice that, first of all, he says, love is evident. 
that God's Spirit dwells in you. John says in verse 12, look at it. No one has seen God at any time. That's true. How many have seen God? I didn't think so. None of us have. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. So John says, no one has seen God at any time, past or present. John has already told us back in chapter 1 that God the Father chose to reveal himself through his Son, Jesus Christ. So John's point is this. Since no one has seen God the Father, and since Jesus Christ is no longer visible here on the earth, remember he was born, born in the flesh, was manifested in the flesh, right? John talks about that in chapter 1, the first few verses. He makes that clear. That is a truth. It's why Jesus came. He was manifested in the flesh, but he came for a purpose to die on the cross. But he didn't stay dead. He rose again three days later, and then 40 days later, he resurrected into, or he ascended into heaven, where he is now. We await the day when he might come. In fact, just a little side note here, until he comes. You know, tomorrow's a big day, right? Pretty big day. In fact, I don't know, people are saying that we're going to have like 100,000 people converge on Kansas City, St. Joe, and millions of people here in the path of the solar eclipse are all going to be doing what tomorrow? around, what is it, 1 o'clock? We're all going to be doing this. <laughs> Looking at the sun. And somebody pointed out in a blog post this week, and it was right on. Wouldn't it be awesome that as millions of people looking at the S-U-N, the S-O-N, returns? Oh, man, that would be just, woo, right? The coolest thing in the whole world. Now, I'm not saying that's going to happen. Don't take, I'm not predicting that. All right? But it would sure be cool. It would sure be. So John points out, he says, since no one has seen God the Father, and since Jesus Christ is no longer visible here on earth, how are people going to see God's love for them? And John's answer is, if we love one another, then people will see God's love for them. In other words, the best way people will see God's love is when we show them God's love. Uh, show Christ. That's what it's all about. In fact, the only Jesus that most people will ever see is the one they see in you. John says, this love that we show others is evidence then that God's Spirit dwells in us. You can't love like God does in your own power. You ever tried to love a difficult person on your own? In your own power? You make it for about 10 seconds and then you're mad at them. You just want to haul off and slug them or slap them. And so when you show God's love to somebody, it's like, whoa, man, where's that coming from? How is that possible? Because everything in our flesh does not want to do that. And yet when we do show God's love, that's coming from a different power, the power of the Holy Spirit, God's divine seed in us. 
John writes in verse 13, by this, by what? By your love for others. We know that we abide in God and He in us because He has given us His Spirit. In fact, remember, the fruit of the Spirit, what's listed first in the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5? What's the first one? Love. This is how God's love is perfected in us. That doesn't mean we're perfect. That come, that's coming, though, later when we get our glorification, when we get to heaven. Ooh, that would be a day. But it does mean that God's love is perfected or completed in us as we show God's love. It's like giving someone a gift. It's not enough just to give them a gift. You intend for them to do what with that gift? To open it, right? To unwrap it, open it, and enjoy the gift. That's the completion and perfection of the gift. What happens if my wife gives me a shirt for my birthday and she never sees me wear it? What's she going to think? Darla, what are you going to think? If you give me a shirt for my birthday I don't ever wear it, what are you going to think about that? She's going to think, I don't really like that shirt. My hubby doesn't like it. I don't ever see him wearing it. He's not enjoying it. He told me he liked it. He must only be pretending he liked it. He doesn't like it. He's never wearing it. What's up with that, Bruce? God has given us the gift of his love, and the perfection of that gift comes only when we enjoy the love, when we demonstrate the love, when we show the love. And that love, John says, is evidence... Because you can't love like that in your own power, it's evidence that you have God's power, God's spirit within you. But John says something else about this. He makes another point here. He says, number two, love is commanded because it reflects God's character. Notice what John writes in verse 19. He says, we love him because he first loved us. And so God expects us to love as we ought because he first loved us. And again, we're reminded that this love relationship we have with God began with God. We had nothing to do with it at first. How could we? What was our spiritual condition before Jesus Christ? You go to Ephesians chapter 2, and Paul says we are what in our sins? We're dead. You ever see a dead person love? It takes God moving in sovereign grace toward us. Our eyes are open, and that's when we recognize our sin and our need for Jesus. And then we respond by faith and say yes to Jesus Christ. And for those who have responded to God's love by trusting in Jesus Christ for your salvation, John says then show God's love by loving others. In fact, notice how he says it. He's rather direct and to the point, which is typical of John in verses 20 and 21. He says, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that is Jesus, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Once again, 
John is telling us it's impossible to love God and hate your brother. To say you love God and hate your brother is to live a lie. And what we are lying about is our claim that we love God, that we even know God, that we have a relationship with God. John's logic goes like this. If you can't love the person you can see, it's impossible for you to love God who you have not seen. But I would ask, which is easier, to love God or to love people? What do you think? I bet if we took a, a, a straw poll here, had you mark it down, piece of paper we collected, I bet the majority of us would say that it's easier to love God and harder to love people. That's what I would say. And the reason is simple, because God is what? He's perfect. And he always loves me, no matter what I do. People, on the other hand, well, let's be honest, they're imperfect. They don't always love me back, and they're, well, some of them are annoying. Right? It can be hard to love people, easier to love God. You would think John would agree, but he does not. John says it's harder to love God than people. And his logic is this, because people are visible, but God is not. And so if you don't love people whom you see, then John is questioning and asking, then how can you claim to love God whom you have never seen? Furthermore, John says, we have the command of Jesus. It's a new command, remember? I've already talked about it. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. And so the question then is, well, do you love your brother or your sister? John says, we are deeply loved by God, so love others deeply. Now, let's kind of step back from that, and let's be honest. In our selfishness, we wonder does it pay to love others deeply? In other words, we want to know, is, is loving others, is that, is that going to benefit me? What, what do I get out of this deal? How, and by the way, that is how most people in our world love others. We kind of predetermine beforehand, before we venture out to love somebody, well, all right, what do I get out of this? How does this benefit me to love this person? Because after all, loving somebody kind of makes me vulnerable to them. And so, how, what do I get from this? And so immediately, our love from a human perspective, it is selfish from the get-go. It's all based on what we get, how it improves my image. And so if you're a student at school, and the person who's kind of made fun of, and you're like, well, if I, if I love that person, if I sit with them and be nice for them, then it's like, whoa, I don't know, you know, what's that going to do for my image at school? Coworker, neighbor, it's no different. And so immediately in our selfishness, we're asking the question, does it pay to love like God's wanting me to love? Well, John doesn't tell us it pays to love. After all, we've already established the fact that God's love is what kind of love? It's unconditional and it's sacrificial. And so loving others is not about what we get from it or about how it benefits us. And yet, oh, this is beautiful. Hang on with me. Stay with me for the next few minutes. John says in the same way, at the same time, he says, you know what? There is a payoff, though. And now that's got my attention. 
A payoff? To love like I ought to love? John, tell me more. What's this payoff? We'll look at it here. Here's the payoff, number one. Loving deeply gives us assurance that we are born of God and know Him. That's the first payoff. It's the first result. Listen to what John writes again in verses 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So how do we know that we know God? How do you know that you know God? Somebody asks you that question. Like your neighbor's really going to ask you that question. But let's pretend some, your neighbor asks you that question. How do you know that you know God? What are you going to say to him? John tells us an answer right here. Well, because I love one another. That's how I know I know God. Because I love one another. Real love always has its source in God. And whoever loves with a God kind of love, sacrificial, unconditional, gives evidence that they have been born of God and know God. Listen. John is telling us here that the sign that we are born of God and that we know God is that we love like God. And that love reveals itself, get this, first and foremost, in how we give and forgive others like Jesus did us. Oh, Bruce, you're getting a little too specific now. You're getting to the nitty-gritty. You mean my love has got to give and forgive? Yeah, because that's exactly what Jesus did. And that might send some of you into despair even right now because you're thinking to yourself, I don't know that I love like that. I don't know that I love enough like that. How do I know if I love enough? And the answer is no, no, no. Listen, the basis of your salvation is not in how much you love, but on what Christ has already accomplished for you on the cross. Isn't that beautiful? So now you can love freely, even though it's imperfect, and it's, it's a learning curve. It's, it's like taking two steps back, going three steps forward. None of us are going to love perfectly. And yet, John tells us, Loving deeply. Listen, as we do this, as we grow in this, it's what gives us assurance that we are born of God and we know God. But there's a second payoff. Oh, and this is really good. Loving deeply gives us confidence as we await the day of judgment. Now listen to me careful here. Every person, every person, No exceptions. There's, there's no exceptions to this. Every person will one day stand before God and give an account of his or her life. A person who is not a believer in Christ ought to be afraid of that future judgment before God. But believers in Christ have no fear 
a future judgment because our judgment is already past. It occurred on the cross of Christ. And for that reason, we have confidence as we await what John calls the day of judgment. Look what he says in verses 17 and 18. He says, love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness, confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, that is, as Jesus is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. And so, in other words, loving deeply is evidence that God's love has been perfected in us. That love gives us confidence in the day of judgment. Or as John says, perfect love casts out what? Fear. Now, so there's no misunderstanding here. It's, it's right to fear God. There is such a thing as a healthy, holy fear of God Almighty. And to be quite honest, we don't have enough of that in our society, in our culture, even in our churches. But there's another kind of fear, a cringing, cowering kind of fear that isn't healthy. And John says God's perfect love drives out that kind of fear. We have two boxers, Jasmine and Kaya. And Kaya is our older boxer. And she's a rescue dog. And before we got Kaya, let me tell you, she was abused. She had fleas. She had worms. She was malnourished and scrawny. In fact, you could see her backbone. You could see her rib cage. Her face was sunken in. She was abused. And for the first few weeks, she just cowered under the dining room table. She was afraid of men especially, so that meant she wouldn't let me touch her, pet her for, the, for a, a, a while. She warmed up to my wife and my two boys rather quickly, but not to me. But through lots of love, her fear has been driven out, and now she is it's, it's, it's awesome. She just When she hears that garage door coming up in the evenings when I'm coming home, man, she just hightails it to the bottom of the basement there at the door where the garage door opens, and she's just all excited when I come in. And she will not leave until I Acknowledge her, hug her, and love on her. And then once I do that, then she runs back upstairs. And she is our affectionate dog. She's our lover. And in the same way, God's perfect love drives out fear as we await the day of judgment. Why? Because God looks at us in the same way he looks at his son. This is one of the blessings of knowing God as Father. Folks, we are sons and daughters of God through Jesus Christ. And as Jesus is loved by the Father, so we are loved by the Father, which means we don't need to cower in God's presence. So let me ask you, what are you afraid of today? My mom's deathly afraid of snakes. My son Jack is, like, deathly afraid of spiders. And the older I get, I have to admit, I'm deathly afraid of going up ladders. There's one fear that all who are without Jesus should have. And all who know Jesus should never have. And that is the fear of judgment. 
Christians should have no fear of judgment because when you know God's love, you're not afraid of the future. Jesus said this in John 5, 24. Whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment. And so if you are a believer in Jesus Christ here this morning, folks, listen, then rejoice! Rejoice! Because you know that you will never have to face the judgment of God in your future. Your judgment has already occurred at the cross of Christ where God poured out His wrath or your judgment on His Son. And so John says, knowing that you are deeply loved in this manner, we are now to love others. There's no fear in God's love. He loves you and He sent His Son to die for you. And even in the midst of the hardest trial that you are going through in your life, that is still true. That does not change. Because God is love and His love never changes for you. Therefore, since we are deeply loved by God, we ought, we have it within us, we are empowered to, by the very nature of God's Spirit, to do what? To love others even when they're difficult to love. And John says that gives us assurance that we are believers in Christ, and that gives us confidence as we await the return of Christ. Hallelujah. Woo! So let us, we are life bridge, let us leave here this morning and do what? Love others deeply. Why? Because you are deeply loved by God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for our time together. We thank you for your word, your truth in 1 John here. Lord, let it impact us. Let it change us. Let this reality of your love for us impact who we are. And perhaps there are some here, their first starting point is to embrace the love of God in Jesus Christ. And perhaps they have never done that before. Lord, open up their heart and their eyes to see their need for Jesus Christ. Let them put their faith in you and to cry out for you to save them from their sins and to claim you as their Lord and Savior. And For the rest of us, Lord, may we allow these truths to grip our hearts that we are deeply loved and that we would go out and love others. We would show your love and you would use us to make a difference for eternity. We pray these things in your name. Amen. We're going to sing just one chorus of invitation, of response time. This is for you to respond as God leads. They're done. We'll receive our morning offering and then be dismissed.